Movie Buff Specialist Phil and John are back with episode number 23 as we count down our favorite 100 movies of all time. We are on to number 78, inching closer to a quarter of the way through this list. We are so close. But today's number 78 is going to be The Revenant and Unbreakable, two of the more polarizing, I guess yours definitely, John, uh, mm-hmm. directors in Hollywood directing The Revenant and Unbreakable. That's Alejandro Ingaritu and M. Night Shyamalan. Um, M. Night Shyamalan polarizing, it seems, because everybody just got tired of his shtick. Ingaritu, I haven't been able to figure it out, but maybe John will be able to open my eyes to it a little bit more because I just remember when Birdman and The Revenant came out back-to-back years, people just didn't like Alejandro Ingaritu. So, um I guess the general public, I, you know, people just were angry. Everything, everybody's going to hate every Best Picture nominee and winner anyway, right? But of course. I never understand it with Ingeritu. I always feel like he should be like the David Lean of our generation. But we'll get to that as we actually get into that. John, I know this was your first time watching The Revenant, even though you are from Canada. How? Uh, how? Well, it came out in 2015. <laughs> And at that point, I was just gearing up to move to Bella Coola, which is in the middle of the Great Bear Rainforest. So maybe seeing a movie about a grizzly attack while literally having 14 grizzly bears frequent my yard wasn't the best idea. Yeah, I'd say that's probably fair. I mean, I mean, it's funny because John was telling me about his his time in Bella Coola, and I kind of imagine that this is what it was like based on how he explained it, even though it was 2015. Just saying. Um, what, what, what you got? You got a rebuttal for Be- Bella Coola? Was it very much like this? No, I was going to confirm it. It is it, I, my feelings during the Revenant, as we'll get into later. It was very similar to life up in Bella Coola. I love it. I love it. I can't wait to talk about this. Uh, two movies, The Revenant uh, ended up losing Best Picture to Spotlight, which we know how I feel about Spotlight, and Spotlight is on John's top 100, so we know how John feels about Spotlight. That should be a nice, conflicting um, podcast there. That should be a good one, because I'm not a fan of Spotlight, although I do love The Revenant. But let's start off with Unbreakable, because despite the fact that Unbreakable was pretty massive when it came out, I feel like as with many Shyamalan movies, it has just totally fallen to the wayside. I feel like because Shyamalan went on such a cold streak there from Lady in the Water on pretty much until Split, um, he really lost a lot of respect and people stopped going back to his earlier movies and rather than appreciate them it seemed like they started to rather go back and nitpick them kind of like what we see with signs and what we see with the village and movies that when they came out weren't poorly received but in retrospect nobody likes because m night Shyamalan made them however unbreakable is the one that kind of got out of this a little unscathed it seems like the sixth sense pretty much considered a classic by all and then unbreakable Never gets lumped in with the village and signs. It's never really lumped in with as great as the sixth sense, but it somehow escaped. This was the first time I'd seen this in probably 15 or 16 years. But, John, it's your number 78, so I'll let you take the lead on it. One of the big things with Unbreakable is M. Night Shyamalan, after the disaster that was Lady in the Water and his adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender, had fallen completely out of favor despite how fast he burst onto the scene with the sixth sense and unbreakable kind of fell to the wayside until split came out. And then at the very end of split, we find out that this is actually part of a trilogy that M night Shyamalan was building. 
which had an unfortunate conclusion to it. But this movie, to me, does everything right with a superhero origin story, which is really interesting when you consider the fact it came out in 2000. We were just seeing the superhero boom of that the beginning of that decade where we had like the X-Men movie come out before we're a year before Spider-Man at this point. And there's just this nice subtle superhero origin movie kind of nestled in between. But one of the big things with it for me is that it really went to show how good Shyamalan was as a filmmaker and not just as the twist guy. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So I I talked about last week with The Others how The Sixth Sense to me doesn't really hold up because I do feel that that movie is very much the twist and nothing else. And I understand, like, the cultural zeitgeist around that movie. Like, I get it. I totally get it. I mean, that was mind-blowing at the time. But Unbreakable, as I was rewatching it, I appreciated it so much more because of how seriously Shyamalan took it. And I feel like with a lot of his other movies, like The Village and Signs, he also takes it very seriously. And then he starts to just become a joke. And, you know, Lady in the Water, uh, if you follow my letterbox, it is my zero star movie. I have no other zero star movies, although Hillbilly Elegy was kind of close to taking over that role. But Lady in the Water was probably one of the most miserable movie going experiences of my entire life. I hated that movie. I saw it in theaters. I saw it with my grandma, my dad, my mom, my sister. We were all excited. It was the Sixth Sense guy. We had all enjoyed the village. So, like, it was what it was. And that movie is the biggest piece of garbage I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's it's just horrible. And it's just him being, like, too big for himself. He thinks he's smarter than he is. And it wasn't endearing. That was the other problem. Like, it wasn't a David Lynch-type thing where, like, David Lynch doesn't really care if you get it or not. Shyamalan was almost insulting people by saying, if you don't get it, that's your fault and you should be better and get it. Whereas Lynch is like, if you don't get it, that's your fault. Hope you like it anyway. You know, like that's kind of the difference between them. Unbreakable, there is nothing really tongue in cheek in that movie. And I do think, you know, we talked about with the others coming out just two years after the Sixth Sense and still being able to pull off that twist ending. Unbreakable came out at a perfect time because really up until this point, all we had were the Tim Burton Batmans. There really weren't many other uh, superhero movies coming out. So it was okay to create an origin story for a superhero who didn't have a name and it didn't matter or anything like that. And just kind of be like, hey, we're superhero fans. We're Marvel, we're comic book fans. That's what this movie is for. And it wasn't really until eight years later that this market started to become incredibly saturated once Iron Man came out the same year that The Dark Knight came out. So this was really good timing. And Bruce Willis is phenomenal in this movie. Like, it's crazy how good and how serious he takes it. And my biggest complaint with the movie is just that Samuel Jackson isn't in all that much of the movie, which I guess is kind of how origin stories go. The villain is always kind of a little bit more hidden. Batman Begins, Liam Neeson's kind of all over the place. But I really feel like this one, if Samuel Jackson was in more of this movie, I think this would actually probably be considered not just by John, but by most people as M night Shyamalan's best movie, because it is doing something so unique with a topic that we have seen beaten to death in 2021. Absolutely. And one of the big things that I find really enjoyable about this movie is that 
as we're progressing through the movie, it, it very much is presented in a way where it is uh, David Dunn's origin story, how he's like realizing what his powers are and how he can use them for good. But in the end, I actually view this movie more as a supervillain origin story than a superhero origin story, because really it's all about uh, Elijah becoming Mr. Class and becoming this conniving supervillain who has just been searching for his superhero so he can claim the mantle of supervillain. And a lot of that comes down to this idea that when we're presented with Elijah, when David first meets him, you think he's kind of like the mentor role, which we see in so many of these superhero movies. But in the end, he's been manipulating everything to this point to get to this point because he's actually the villain. And while that twist isn't as significant of a twist as the sixth sense or even like the village or signs, uh, which definitely used the same plot point as this movie, by the way, literally the same plot. I did. I was laughing. I forgot that was that in this. So I just thought that was really funny that it was the same thing. Uh, but this twist is so subtle and is literally the last thing that happens in this movie. And it, I think it's just so much more impactful than these other twists that Shyamalan uses. And I think that's why it's so important to realize that the twist doesn't make a Shyamalan movie. Mm -hmm. That there are other aspects of the movie that lead to that. A lot of it comes to his dialogue. He has a very distinct way of writing dialogue and the performances he gets from his actors in relation to that dialogue and his filmmaking in general and just like the shots that he's using are very distinct. But everyone for some reason just remembers him as the twist guy. That's what he set himself up as, and that was the problem. He set himself up as that so early on. If you think about it, we've talked about his first four movies. Every one of them had some sort of twist. Signs, it's not really so much a twist. I mean, Signs is an alien movie. How do we figure out what the alien is bad, like what is bad for the alien? That's different. The Village is 100% a twist movie. This is 100%, not 100%, but this is like, you know, The Sixth Sense is like 100% a twist movie. This movie has a twist in it. And the mm-hmm. twist is that Mr. Glass is the bad guy, you know, and, and but to me, that's not a twist as significant because that is more real realistic in terms of what we've seen in movies. We've seen so many movies where the guy you think is trying to help you is just the bad guy. To me, that's mm-hmm. not even so much a twist. Somebody being dead the whole time. That's a twist. A village existing in the middle of nowhere while we're still living in 2005 or whatever year that movie came out. That's a twist. But this to me is more of just this is the story. And and I love the plotting that goes into this because one of my biggest complaints with the first two movies of M. Night Shyamalan are Mm -hmm. that he does a great job of setting everything up. He does a great job of setting up all of his characters and the story and getting you into it. And then towards the end of The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, he throws in a pointless side project for your main character that should be so much more impactful than it is. But he did nothing with it. And in The Sixth Sense, that is when um, that's when he's trying to figure out who who like the girl and, and the poisoning. <laughs> it's too fast. It happens too quickly. It's there's not enough buildup to it. Like, well, who is this girl? Why don't I know this girl? And that's how I feel in Unbreakable. Why do I not find out who this guy is till the end when he gets touched and all of that? And I understand that this is Bruce Willis figuring out like what he's got. But 
make that the guy who was in line at the secure at the stadium or something like that. Like mm-hmm. make it some have some sort of impact rather than just oh great he did this good thing, but. Bruce Wayne and and all the other superheroes are doing that in the first five minutes of their movie because then at the end of the movie they're saving what we have watched be in peril the entire time. It's my biggest knock on Unbreakable. It's my biggest knock on The Sixth Sense. That kind of irks me. But with Unbreakable, I do find everything to be so much better before that that I, I forgive it. And then I think the ending is just – I think the ending is just great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you raise a good point because – this whole like big heroic moment for David isn't built up at all. It's a random stranger that he bumps into in a train station that he then goes to save this family from because he knows this guy's doing bad stuff. Uh, <clears throat> I think the reason why that is is because Shyamalan was focusing so much more on character in this movie than he was on plot itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plot kind of comes secondary to this character development. And I think it, it starts in the first time we see David on the train. And he's on the train. And uh, the sports agent sits beside him. And he takes his wedding ring off. Mm-hmm. And immediately, you're looking at this and you're like, oh, this guy's kind of a douchebag. Like, he, he's just trying to cheat on his wife. But then later you find out him and his wife are having marital issues and are pretty much on the brink of divorce at this point and are essentially separated. Mm-hmm. So you find out that like the perspective we're having of him at the beginning isn't actually the truth. And I think it, it just parallels what's going on with Elijah in the movie. And it's hinting towards the true or, or the true nature of Elijah's character as well. And it's those little subtleties in the character that I think really drives this movie a lot. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, it definitely is more character, but I still think that there was something that could have been done there because even that 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 opening scene where he's on the train and he takes off the wedding mm-hmm. ring, it's all from the point of view of the little girl kind of looking back and forth. And I thought that was a really cool, you know, decision by Shyamalan mm-hmm. to be like, hey, we're going to do this from the point of a little girl who doesn't understand it, just like you don't understand it. She thinks she's seeing yep. something that maybe she's not really seeing. And, and yeah, Bruce Willis is definitely hitting on her despite what he says after that. That's for sure. But like we're seeing it from the perspective of somebody who's not knowledgeable on the situation and just trying to put it together. Um, and it's also cool because then it gets into, OK, who's going to be important here? And at the end of the day, the only one who's important is David Dunn because everybody else dies. Uh, but really cool technique that he used there that you're just not used to. It's just. I think and, and and maybe maybe it shouldn't be as much of a complaint for me, because if you think about it, all the other Shyamalan movies like that, they do end up focusing too much on the plot mm-hmm. and and, you know, it's forcing the plot. How can I force the plot? How can I for the happening? Like one of the worst movies ever made. Just how can I force the plot? Who cares about these characters? Um, there's something mature about Unbreakable and it's just, you know, Parts of it leaves me disappointed, but ultimately, like the entire time, I found myself sitting there going, wow, I can't believe I haven't seen this in so long, and I can't believe this doesn't actually get discussed more, but I think the unfortunate thing with Shyamalan is nobody ever discusses his good movies anymore. All anybody wants to do is discuss his bad ones because, you know, it's easier. He's a punching bag here in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly, and when you're thinking about that aspect of it and the fact that Shyamalan's movies, I actually think 
there's a possibility that having this twist ending at the end, where or like this not real twist, the pseudo twist ending at the end with the Gla- Mr. Glass reveal, I think that might have influenced Shyamalan moving forward, wherein he kind of then realized, oh, I guess I am the twist guy, because everyone was calling him the twist guy, and then felt he had to do that. I feel like if the general public hadn't said, hey, M. Night, you're you're the twist guy after this movie, he might not have felt as compelled to write a twist in every single one of his movies. Well, and and we've talked about this before, but but a twist is good when the buildup is good, but... Mm -hmm. A twist is also good when you don't see it coming, you know. And and I'll talk. We'll talk about uh, our our favorite movies we watched this week. And I I watched a good one with a hell of a twist ending. And I knew there was a twist in the movie, but I done hadn't done research. I hadn't looked into it. But the thing is, if you sit down and every time you watch a movie by somebody, you're expecting a twist. Well, then it becomes numbing. Mm-hmm. I don't. I I think you have the Grand Budapest Hotel in your top hundred. I do. I do not. And one of my main reasons for that is like once like i love wes anderson's style but at some point does wes anderson's style just become wes anderson's style mm-hmm. and now it's every time you sit down to watch the movie you know exactly what you're gonna get you know there's there's really nothing different to it the production design on the grand budapest hotel is absolutely unbelievable so that is that de- i that's a four-star movie in my opinion but i'm just saying it's not my top hundred because perhaps it hits that point When you sit down and watch a Shyamalan movie, if you're expecting a twist every time, you're now not enjoying the ride you're going on because all you're thinking to yourself is, okay, what's going to be the twist? What's he laying down? What am I doing? And then when there's nothing, you're going to feel disappointed because you're going to feel cheated when in reality, that was never the point anyway. Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote The Usual Suspects, which we'll be talking about in a bunch of weeks now, best twist ending in, in film history, in my opinion, it's... He had to move away from that, and he did a pretty good job of moving away from that, where then he ended up just writing movies and didn't get stuck as the twist guy, even though that was his first screenplay, much the same way The Sixth Sense was Shyamalan's screenplay. Also might have helped that he just came out three years before Shyamalan when he didn't get as much notoriety because the public on movies, it was something that, like, it didn't feel like, how can we replicate this? How can we replicate this? How can mm-hmm. we replicate this? And really, that all started in 1999 with not just The Sixth Sense, but with The Blair Witch Project. Everything mm-hmm. was trying to replicate that. And when it's horror, everybody always wants a twist in horror, whereas if it's a mystery, you know what you're being set up for. So I think Macquarie had an easier time moving away from it than Shyamalan did. And to you know, it, it worked for him. It didn't work for Shyamalan for a long time. Yeah, and it, it is unfortunate because... When we get down to the actual filming of Unbreakable and the movie itself, and we're looking at... Phil has disappeared on us. But when we're looking at the different aspects of the film that are used and the different angles that Shyamalan is using to frame shots, it really does go to show that Shyamalan's a very good filmmaker himself and not just this person who's writing a script that will bring people into the theater because it's his name attached to it. When you see the way that he frames uh, Mr. Glass throughout the film, in the very beginning, we don't see Elijah outside of a reflection for a very long time. And this is kind of playing on this idea that we are seeing this persona of Elijah 
as we learn about him in the movie. Reflections are just a part of culture that way. When we look at mirrors, I mean, we're going to be talking about the movie Mirror in a very long time from now. But when we look at what a mirror represents and the reflection of a person, it's, it's this idea of a... It's this idea of, like, the identity of the real person. So when we see Elijah through these reflections, that's Shyamalan setting up this idea that maybe we're not seeing the real Elijah when we don't see him in a reflection. Well, yeah, and also calling him Mr. Glass. I mean, that, you know, that kind of plays into this whole idea of mirrors. Mm-hmm. Sorry about disappearing on you there. It's my last time using this computer, man. I'm back. I'm back in Florida on, on Wednesday. So it's the last time we're doing the podcast here. But uh, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, and, and, and calling him Mr. Glass. Yeah, it's the broken bones and all though he used to break and all that. But it's also the fact that there is something like you're saying there's a, he's a reflection of what he's a reflection. In my opinion, he's more of a reflection on society where when we hear about these disasters, that's what we focus on. We focus on these disasters and Oh, that one person who survived or something like that. He's kind of that reflection. Now, if you want to, yeah, Mr. Glass, it's because of the broken thing. But if you can see yourself in glass, you're going to see yourself in him because you're going to look at the newspaper articles that say all that stuff. There's a reason why you don't have newspaper articles that are Delta airlines flight lands safely in Los Angeles, because that's every single flight, pretty much every single day that flies to Los Angeles, the one in 1 billion that doesn't it's, it's crazy. So you're going to pay attention when it's really bad. I was thinking about the, the flight that disappeared all those years ago, um, that everybody's saying was like the the new law. It was like lost in real life. It was crazy. You're gonna pay attention to that because it's so rare and it's so weird. And it's just so, like, mm-hmm. and that's I think what Mister Glass is doing. You're gonna have your attention drawn to the building that goes on fire, the the train that crashes, the plane that crashes, and you're gonna pay attention to the ones where nobody survives or just one person survives. And it's almost like I like this whole idea of him playing God and forcing the hand of um, who when will I find that one person who can survive? And at the end of the day, nobody's going to remember the name of David Dunn. They're just going to remember him as the guy who survived the plane, the, the train crash. They're not even going to know his face. or anything. They're just going to say, remember that one guy who did what? Like, that's how it's going to go. And he's trying to bring even more of a spotlight onto it. though. Yeah. And, and he even. I mean, at the end of the film, we're even told that he's arrested for domestic terrorism and everything. So his name is the one that's remembered, which is kind of the ironic thing about this. And it's really this testimony to real heroes kind of fade into the background and aren't really the people that we know, which is really in contrast to these other superhero movies we see where, yes, they have a secret identity, but everyone knows the hero themselves, right? Everyone knows Batman and no Spider-Man. But in this case, David's just this guy wearing a poncho who saved these two kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's a pretty normal guy who we know can't get injured, but anybody else isn't going to know that, you know? And I always find it cool when they do do 
these types of superhero movies where it's not a real superhero because mm-hmm. there's so many expectations that come in now with a superhero movie um, where you're expecting certain elements, you're expecting certain plot points, you're expecting certain characters. There's so much that you expect when you know who the superhero is. And so in a movie like this, when you have zero expectations of what this guy is going to do or what his superpower is or anything like that, but supervillains are the ones who are better remembered than superheroes. I mean, when you say World War II, you don't name the guys who won and who saved people. You say Hitler every single time. You're always going to say the bad person, not the good person. And I think that's just the way that you know media and everything portrays stuff is it's just in a very negative light. And, you know, again, Mr. Glass, as the reflection here, we remember him. Nobody's going to know David Dunn's name because he doesn't have anything catchy. He's not the Batman or he's not, you know, I always think of Cillian Murphy saying the Batman. Yeah. That's like, but you know, there's, there is nothing there. It's, it's a new guy and it's just a bald guy who wears a poncho, like you said, and it's stop playing football and we don't really know why. Yeah. And that's really an interesting uh, look at society too, where the villain does tend to be the more iconic character in most films. If we look at, if we look at AFI's top, uh, they have a top 50 list of the best cinema, cinema heroes and villains. Mm-hmm. And Vader is the top villain. He's iconic. Everyone knows who Darth Vader is. And the number one hero on that list is uh, Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, yep. And like the comparison of those two characters, and if you ask someone, if you just ask someone on the, on the street, do you know who Darth Vader is? They're going to say yes. Even if they've never seen Star Wars, they're going to say yes. You ask them who Atticus Finch is, there are a lot of people who aren't going to know who he is anymore. Yeah. And it's funny because then as you go down, and I'm looking at this list now because Indiana Jones, James Bond, obviously we know who those are. Do you know what movie Will Kane is from or do you have it in front of you? Don't look if you don't know. You don't know what movie he's from, right? No. No, he's from High Noon. Rick Blaine. Do you know what movie Rick Blaine is from? Casablanca. You don't know his oh, last name is Blaine, but you know yeah. he's Rick. You just don't know his, yeah. you don't know he's Rick Blaine. Clarice Starling, you know Rocky Balboa, Ellen Ripley. Those make sense. But I, I see what your point is. And then when you go down to the villains, the difference is, so it's actually Hannibal Lecter is number one. Oh, sorry. My apologies. But still, everybody knows what Hannibal Lecter's from. Then it's Norman Bates. Bates Motel is still something you see all the time around Halloween. And then it's Darth Vader, the Wicked Witch of the West. And then Nurse Ratched, which do you know what Nurse Ratched is from? Yeah, of course. Okay. And then and then Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. And then you get into probably the first one that people wouldn't know, which is Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction. So it takes seven there. It only takes you four on the heroes. <laughs> and and that's just really funny because then even some of the ones further down, Reagan McNeil from The Exorcist. Like that's at number nine. That's a pretty common name that people know. The Queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Alex DeLarge. And yeah, Mr. Glass isn't going to pop up on these lists, but I think that you there was also a very long streak at the Oscars where best supporting actor was almost only going to villains. Mm-hmm. Only going to villains. I mean, I know Alan Arkin ended up winning for um, Little Miss Sunshine, which was a massive upset. Nobody thought he was actually going to win, but you had Javier Bardem win. You had um, – well, that was actually after that, so that's okay. So it was like Javier Bardem. You had Christoph Waltz win, I think, the year after or something like that. Like you had such a streak of – you had the Joker. So it was, it was mm-hmm. Javier Bardem, Heath Ledger, and then it was um, Christoph Waltz. That's, I mean, that's three iconic villains in a row. Three mm-hmm. iconic villains in a row. 
now who was the hero? Obviously, you know the hero of Batman, but who's the hero of No Country for Old Men? I don't know what his I mean, name. Arguably, is. there isn't one. But. Oh, yeah, arguably there isn't. And who's the hero of of Inglorious Bastards? Another one. Arguably, there isn't one. There's just something about villains that just get people going. Yeah, and and I think it's because people are attracted to this dark reflection of themselves in villains, and that's what Glass shows us. It's even interesting how Shyamalan names the three movies that focus on these three separate characters in this trilogy, because we have Unbreakable. It's focusing on the fact that uh, David Dunn is essentially an invincible man with one weakness, which is water. And then we have Split, which is focusing on the, the split personalities of uh, of um, James McAvoy. Don't know James his McAvoy. name. James McAvoy's character in that movie. And then the last one is still titled Glass. It's the mm-hmm. only one that is the name of the character. Mm-hmm. And that really speaks about what a villain is and how iconic the villains are. So when we see that in this film, we we really see that Shyamalan is saying, we're kind of all the villain. Or we're all striving to be the villain because that's the way we get remembered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I always think about like The Incredibles, which came out, I think, three years after Unbreakable, something like that, with uh, Jason Lee's. I forget what the name of the villain is in that, but Syndrome. But, uh, what is it? Syndrome. Oh, Syndrome. That's right. So, yeah, you have Syndrome. Like, Syndrome and, Gla- and Mr. Glass are the same person. They're mm-hmm. the same person. They grew up, felt that they were being overlooked, felt that they were being bullied, always wanted the heroes. Find a way to get the heroes because those are their idols. That's who they want to be. That's everything they're not. It's the same person. It's yep. the it's the same thing, but it works because that is a lot of time what ends up being a villain. A lot of times with the villains, it ends up being somebody who grew up not always, but grew up in circumstances that said, "I got a, I got a chip on my shoulder, and what am I going to do about it?" So, yeah, and I mean, it's funny because we got a half hour into this podcast now. We've even talked about the best scene in this movie, which is by far the gun at the kitchen table. Oh yeah, that scene is. Again, we, we've talked about this many times. When you have a child actor who can perf- give a performance like the the one in this film, it, it it's, makes a film a lot more special. Yeah. And that scene, I mean, I have my own irks with it because we have a Chekhov's gun that didn't go off, and that kind of that kind of feels weird. But there's so much tension in that scene, and the way that David's character just approaches it and de-escalates the situation, you're not sure if he's going to get shot or not. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's such a tense scene. It's, it's the most tense scene in this entire movie, even compared to David in the pool as he's like trying to fight this guy who's taking over this home. That's nowhere near as tense as the scene where his son is sitting there with a gun pointed at him. Yeah. Yeah, and and I even like how, I think in the next scene or the scene after, he tells Mr. Glass, and Mr. Glass says, I never said you couldn't die. Like, mm-hmm. so you still don't know, like, would that have killed him? Would it not? We really don't know. Probably not. But Mr. Glass even says, I never said you couldn't die. Everybody's got a kryptonite. You know, like, it is what it is. Yeah. But that actually, uh, fun little fun facts here, that's the kid from Mystic River. 
-hmm. And in Mystic River, he also does a pretty phenomenal job, which is probably why Mystic River is one of Clint Eastwood's best movies is because that kid, yeah, Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Marsha Gay Harden, you know, Laura Linney, Kevin Bacon, it's a Lawrence Fishburne. It's the most ridiculous cast, but that kid holds his own when he needs to hold his own. And it's why a twist like in that movie in Mystic River pays off. Whereas twists that try to do the same thing don't pay off in other movies. So yeah, that kid could act. And uh, I don't actually know what ended up happening to him after Mystic River. I mean, that might've really been it. Uh, I think he went into like some TV stuff. I know he's appeared in some TV shows. and stuff. Okay. There you go. You got anything else you want to say about Unbreakable before we move uh, on? When you watch this movie, forget there's a twist. Just appreciate it for the actual filmmaking itself. Shyamalan does go to show that he knew how to make a movie with this film. Yeah. And it doesn't just rely heavily on his script. There are just a lot of techniques he uses that are fantastic in this movie. Yeah. And it's a shame that uh, he just went on. Like, he got just so into his own head. He wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be the star of everything. And it's a shame he got like that because when he's on, he's on. He's just so rarely on now. And, uh, yeah. you know, I would argue. I mean, I know The Visit got good reviews. I thought The Visit was corny as all hell. So, you know, there's there's a couple, but Glass wasn't very good, you know. So it, it's just like, what can you put up with and what can't you? And, uh yeah, just forget there's a twist and just watch this movie. I mean, it's a it's a well-made movie. It is. And especially in this oversaturated superhero market, I mean, I it takes a lot for a superhero movie to make it onto my top of my head. I only have two of them, and neither of them are, like, mainstream superhero movies. Mm-hmm. But it, it's when you take a genre and kind of subvert the expectations of it or play on it and and critique it, that it really become it really elevates it to another level. Yeah. Yeah, and so and so leading into what was the best movie we watched this week? I watched like 9 movies this week cuz I'm at my parents' house and so I had a lot of downtime and it's also 4th of July weekend. I I just came off back-to-back weddings but still found time to watch 9 movies this week. Um and and the best one I watched was Diabolique, which I've been putting off and putting off and putting off and putting off and putting off. And it's from 1955, black and white, subtitled. Normally what prevents me from watching is I normally want to watch horror movies or suspense movies at night, but I'm normally too tired to read subtitles at night. So that's been putting it off and putting it off. It lived up to the expectations. It's great. It's generally considered like uh, the best Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never made. The whole time I was like, all right, where are they going with this? And it, the payoff is great. It, it totally works. And uh, 60-something years later, it still nails it. And that's just – that's so hard to do, and it's just really impressive. So that was the best one I watched this week in a very, very crowded week. About time I got that one out of the way. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one that's been on my list for a little while. And uh, I actually clicked or checked off one on my list that uh, has been there for a while this week. I watched uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's. Uh, first feature film this week in uh, Hard Eight. Uh, it was an interesting one. It didn't quite feel like a PTA film. It was kind of missing some of it. A lot, it's a lot shorter than most PTA mm-hmm. films, so that that kind of surprised me. Um, and it kind of felt like it almost felt like a different filmmaker had made it, but it still had those hints of PTA's distinct style to it. And it was still a very enjoyable film. Yeah, I, I've seen half of that movie. I was watching it in college, and then the stream kept cutting out because the internet that, or Wi-Fi in college was awful. And I never finished it. I'm halfway through. I got to start it over, though, because I clearly don't remember a damn thing. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's from what I remember, it's definitely more punch drunk love than uh, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of length and kind of like yeah. you know development like he's doing uh it's definitely more of that than it is of like there will be blood or boogie nights or one of his two and a half three hour movies um yeah. was that the best one you watched this week it was or? i didn't watch that much this week so it was the best one i watched this okay week. there you go all right well the real best movie i watched this week was the revenant because that's what i watched this week and uh so this is a movie i've this was only the third time i've seen it i saw it in theaters loved it coming off of birdman i thought birdman was so well made um still think whiplash is in my opinion, the better movie. I got that way higher up on my list, but um, I love, I love Birdman. And so then Revenant's coming out. It's like this epic type thing. I'm like, okay, what, what is this movie going to be? And I saw it and I was like, Oh my God, like this guy just like makes good movies. Like he just knows how to make a good movie. And so I, I don't, and, and I don't know how you feel. I know you like Birdman a lot, <clears throat> but with your E2, a movie like Babel, I understand why people don't like Babel. Babel's all over the place. It's chaotic. The payoffs aren't really as good as the setups, you know, all that. Maurice Perros, great movie. Uh, beautiful. Haven't seen it, but I hear it's very good. I'm going to watch that at some point. And then uh, 21 Grams. I love 21 Grams. I think 21 Grams is great. And then like as your E2 became more and more mainstream, all of a sudden people stopped liking him. And like Birdman, people like didn't really buy into Birdman. I know it wins Best Picture, but people didn't buy into it as much as what you would have thought, you know, from general audiences. And then when The Revenant came out, there were like so many articles that were just like panning it and being like, is Ingeritu really going to win again when he does deserve it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I watched this movie and as I'm watching it, like this has, I think, a 78% or something like that on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, granted, I don't Rotten Tomatoes to me means nothing, but I just like to point this out. I sit there and I'm like, what did the 22% of critics who watch this want from this movie? Because it's an epic movie. The the direction is amazing. And it's it's brutal. It's realistic. They went into the middle of nowhere to shoot this stuff. Everything is massive. It has an old school. I always say this is kind of like our generation's Lawrence of Arabia. Like This is the closest we're going to get to Lawrence of Arabia from our generation in terms of scope and all of that. This is a David Lean type movie. And I just, I don't know what people wanted from him beyond what he could have provided. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I I love this movie. I think this movie is a masterpiece. I think the acting is phenomenal. I think the direction is phenomenal. I think the screenplay is phenomenal. I think it it almost feels like a documentary at times of like watching this man survive. I think it's so well done. It's a great revenge story. The Tom Hardy, Leonardo DiCaprio fight scene at the end is so damn good. And I feel like I'm in the minority when I say that these things about this movie, but John, this is your first time watching it. What did you think? It was good. I didn't think it was like this phenomenal movie. I, uh, I appreciated. I really appreciate Ingrida's direction. I did. I appreciated the performances. The performances in this movie are outstanding. Uh, the I personally think Tom Hardy's performance is better than Leonardo DiCaprio's. Wait, it's not even close, man. It's not even close. Leo, great. Give him his Oscar. Give him his pat on the back. Tom Hardy steals this movie. Oh, absolutely. And it's a beautiful film. It, it's hard not to be beautiful. I, this was filmed in 
the Yukon, I think. So, I, I, I don't. Remember, it actually was like Northern know. Canada somewhere, if I remember. We correctly. went to like some like uncharted like kind of place. Yeah. They were just like, let's fly out there untouched. That shot of him walking between the mountains, like that was like untouched. Yeah, and and I don't, maybe I take that part of the film for granted. It's beautiful. I've lived it, mm-hmm. right? Like, like this is just what I have seen in my life because I. I lived in the mountains for three years. I, I lived with grizzly bears for three years. And like, I understand the turmoils and everything with this and it's beautiful. It's captured beautifully. Something about this movie just didn't quite do it for me. I, it felt a little bloated to me. Like there's two and a half hour runtime. There were some scenes where I was like, okay, is this going anywhere? Uh, and it's funny because you talked about how great that last fight scene is. It is fantastic. It's choreographed phenomenally. But it goes on forever. I loved it. I See, see, and I think, I think, like, I buy into, I'm a big fan of epics. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just not the genre anymore. You know what I mean? Like, and that's Maybe. not, that's not to, you know, I totally understand where you're coming from with a lot of this. I don't think that that last shot goes on too long at all. And Jordan offers here, hopefully to defend me and tell you you're wrong. Even though, again, you're giving this a good review, just like I gave unbreakable mm-hmm. a good review. It's just like top hundred. No, not so much. But, yeah. but when I look at epics across time and, and I always make this argument with interstellar compared to space mm-hmm. odyssey, because people yeah. always say, and I, I space odyssey is, you know, one of my top 20 or something like that. But I always make this argument with space odyssey, and interstellar, interstellar comes out. People complain that it didn't make sense. It wasn't realistic, whatever it was. Cause you know, people are in black holes all the time, but then you watch space odyssey and it's like, there's re- like that story. There's not like a concrete story. It's about communication. Mm-hmm. It's about all of that, but it's not, it's not an a to B story. So why do we give that one such a benefit for the doubt and not Interstellar, you know? And so I kind of make that argument with The Revenant, you know, a movie like Lawrence of Arabia that's four hours long, pretty much. That's one of my favorites of all time. That's on everybody's list. That's one of those movies um, that, that you know, everybody will just be thrown out there. Jordan, you're out. Goodbye. Uh, that people will always talk about as, like, one of their favorites and everything. But, like, how is that different than than the revenant why does why does a movie from 1962 always get the benefit of the doubt over a movie from 2015 is it just because these genres just don't work anymore i don't know but but i love epic so i will sit there i'll watch a three-hour epic every time and i'm very rare like yeah there's some that are really bad but i'm more willing to just sit down and participate in that i probably have a much longer top 100 list than a lot of other people do because I love to just be in those types of moments. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a totally reasonable thing. And I think when we're comparing these type of genres that were very successful in the 60s and are less successful now, um, I think a lot of it comes down to the it's been done before mm-hmm. aspect of it. And I mean, I'm not saying that's what has affected me with The Revenant. I, I actually really appreciated The Revenant telling a story in a time period that's really never told about. Always I mean, ignored. <laughs> as a Canadian, and like Canada is a fairly new country for those who didn't know, it didn't become a country until 1867. So a lot of our education leading up uh, through high school and everything is about frontier times and about about this time period. 
And let me tell you, the literature from that time period is boring. Mm -hmm. So it, it was really, in, I really appreciated seeing that time period shown in a film because we don't get films about that. Mm -hmm. But this idea of like this spawning, like the sprawling epic, it just has such a high bar to clear because there are so many immense epics out there to compare it to. Yeah. And, and, and what, what's funny for me is I'll go back and I'll watch some of these epics, like a Cecil B. DeMille movie, mm -hmm. toss it, just toss it. And then you, yeah. you can scream at me and say, dude, do you even like movies? But I don't know, like Ben Hur is good. That, that chariot scene's amazing, but like, it's a long movie. There's a lot going on there that I probably didn't need to watch, but I appreciate, I think what I like so much about the revenue is I appreciate how much he went for with so little like to me, like if Terrence Malick was going to make an Epic, this is how Terrence Malick would make the Epic. And you have yeah. to think in your was coming off of Birdman. Birdman is a movie that is shot as if there were no cuts in it, except for the one scene, but it's shot as if there's no cuts. Like it's a play. It's small. Everybody's on top of each other. And there's probably about 15 more characters in that than there are in this two and a half hour Epic. So I think it's um, I think it's very interesting what he did in back to back years here of going from this really enclosed, really claustrophobic lives falling apart thing. And how am I going to just keep myself going and then turn it around and go, OK, now I'm going to make this massive epic with th pretty much three characters. I mean, it's pretty much Dom Hogleason. It's pretty much it's pretty much Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy. There's a couple other people who run around every now and then, but that's pretty much what this movie is. And, oh, thank you, Jordan. It's William Wyler. I know. I'm thinking of uh, the Ten Commandments. Sorry, I was thinking of the Ten Commandments. Religious epics. That's my bad. But throw out William Wyler, too, then, Jordan. Um, but no, so, but when I think about, like, what he did with all of this and the locations and how all of that goes, I, I just think it's, it's such a big move. Mm -hmm. And you take Leonardo DiCaprio, who's in long movies, but other than Titanic, I wouldn't necessarily call them epics. I'd call them yeah. just long movies. And you get him out of his suit and looking good and, and, you know, the departed and the Wolf of Wall Street and all that. And you put a beard on him and have him just grunt and crawl his way through this movie. Like I, I just, I just respect the heck out of what Ingeritu did. And he, I, I mean, you can like spotlight more. That's fine. I'm never, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, even though I'll tell you that in a couple weeks. But I know you will. The direction from The Revenant, like he earned that Best Director Oscar. I don't really care what anybody says. That was an earned Best Director Oscar, what he was able to capture with this movie. And uh, I don't know, man. It's just it's just massive. It's just a massive movie. Is it bloated? Yeah. Maybe, but it's massive. It is. And, and you, you bring up a really good point about the fact that this came off the heels of Birdman immediately. And it really did go to show Ingrid's scope. Mm -hmm. And what he was capable of doing, because these those two movies are so extremely different. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really important in this movie is, and it is, it's a thing that people kind of lose a lot of the times in movies, and, and that is the idea of who are the real characters in the movie, mm -hmm. because sometimes there are characters who are not people in movies. And that's an important thing with The Revenant because the wilderness itself is this own character. The thing that that Leonardo DiCaprio's character has, like, has to overcome 
the entire time. His survival is so dependent on getting through this wilderness. And it, it's just like how Baltimore's a character in The Wire, or the island's a character mm -hmm. in Lost. It's so important to realize that when you're looking at this film, is that the setting and environment can be a character itself, and how does that influence the characters in the film? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think sometimes nowadays directors don't really have as much in terms of, uh, I don't want to say guts, but like writers, directors, maybe it's just the studios. They don't let you get away so much with man versus environment. Mm -hmm. Arctic was a great example of this. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. It's a one-man show the entire time. But it barely made any money. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's it's tough to to sell this and say, I'm going to make this about somebody having to fight nature, essentially, or getting attacked by a bear. Well, how do you make the bear the villain? You don't. Like, you mm -hmm. don't. And they in this movie, Tom Hardy is the villain. But Tom Hardy doesn't really do anything wrong in this movie. He's not wrong when he's talking about the fact that, like, he's got to die. Like, we're going we're gonna to bring him. And and he's just going to hold us back and we're not going to live. I got to survive. Like, it's a survival of the fittest type thing. This is 1820s. This isn't 2021. This is 200 years ago when that was a like a real thing. And so what's what's fascinating, though, is Tom Hardy's probably in what, a half hour of this movie? Mm -hmm. And he still has such a massive presence that it's enough to carry you through. Yeah. Some I think sometimes like it's hard to find that right balance to strike that balance of how can we make sure that our character is overcoming these obstacles to also overcome something that we can relate to a little bit more. The Revenant does that. A lot of other movies don't really do that. And uh, on the like these epics and stuff where they're not able to have overcoming the, the obstacles and overcoming this person to get their ultimate revenge. Like to me. Yeah. This is one of the best revenge movies ever made, ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting because it doesn't really seem like a revenge movie for the majority of the movie. Mm -hmm. You don't... You, maybe that's where I find it a little lacking is that like the motivation for isn't... Glass's motivation... It's funny because the character's name is also Glass in this. Yeah. Um, but the motivation for the character... It's a little confusing to me. And my major gripe with this movie was I never really felt connected to Glass as a character to care if he lived or died. And it's a question of, is vengeance the only thing driving him or is it survival? And which aspect of that is going? And because there's so little dialogue from Glass in the movie to express that or even just, I don't know, we have a lot of flashbacks to his wife and everything. But it just feels uh, the motivations of the character feels a little empty to me. Yeah, see, I think it's I think it's survival and revenge. I think they're working hand in hand to drive him through this. Mm -hmm. And obviously, his goal is survival. That's why he's constantly pushing himself through this. You know, every thing yeah. that's coming his way and all of that. But I think also it's one of those he wants to survive so he can get his revenge, so he can avenge his son and whatever ended up happening with his wife, like. You know, it happened once. It's not going to happen again. It's one of those things. So for me, I feel that the survival is what, is what, you know, is his obstacle. But the vengeance is what is allowing him to to 
continue to survive. So I think mm -hmm. both are motivations. And I think it's just, you know, I, I'm also like a fan. So this was the same year Jordan brought it up here with George Miller deserved the Oscar, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. I think it's interesting that these two massive movies with very little like dialogue, very little, mm -hmm. very little story. And and to me, these are like more of like and it's the wrong thing to say, but it's like more of like pure filmmaking. Because yep. when films came out, they were silent. There weren't scores. If you watch a silent movie with a score, that's not the real score for the movie. That's a score that somebody put over the top of it. Like, that's yep. not a real score for the movie. So, like, to me, these like these movies that are physical and, and lacking in dialogue and all that, for as much as I love Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson and, and you know, all that, I like these movies where – you just you're just obstacles are whatever the hell is in front of them next whatever's in front of them next that's what the obstacle is you don't have to talk about it you don't have to say oh well you know if we go right then we'll hit a stream if we go left we'll hit a mountain you know, i always think about in the fellowship of the ring yeah. one of my top i think it's my number seven but it's yeah. well, we can't go through the mines we have to go over the mountain okay well now we'll go through the mines in this movie it's i just got to go over whatever the hell is in front of me and it's the same mm -hmm. thing with mad max and i think that's that's always cool when you can just put a situation like that of there is no other option. If the other option is freeze to death. So what do you pick? Just go, just keep going, just keep moving forward. Yeah. And it is, it is well done. And that, mm -hmm. that's really what it comes down to is this film is incredibly well done and does capture that sense. Um, the bear mauling in this movie is incredibly accurate. I don't know how he I still to this day, six years later, do not understand how he did that. It's incredible, an incredible scene. And like I fortunately, while living in the wilderness of Bellacula, did encounter grizzly bears frequently, but never actually got mauled by one, nor witnessed a mauling. But like I heard about maulings that happened in the community. And they're brutal and they're just like this. And the fact that I really enjoy that Ingrida used actual like nature and the laws of nature into making this attack happen. Because one of the first experiences I ever had in Bella Kula, uh, it I've been there for about a month and I hadn't seen a bear yet. And we were driving home from work and there were two bears sitting or in this at the other side of this field. There's two fences between us. They're on the other side of this field. So, like, I get out, take a couple pictures, and one of my coworkers pulls up to me and says, what are you doing? I'm like, excuse me? It's like, those are two cubs. You don't know where the sow is. Mm -hmm. It could be on top of you in seconds. And, like, that, at that moment, it just made me realize, like, my experience with bears has been that bears do not attack unless there's a reason to attack. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Ingrida had glass between a cub and a sow, mm -hmm. huge deal. And, and yeah. even that, it just added to the authenticity of this modeling. And it, it's incredible. It's it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And the filmmaking on that, I don't think this movie won visual effects, which always like cracks me. I mean, you know, it's the Oscars. It is what it is. I don't think it did. It might have. And then I might just be complaining about nothing, but I don't believe it did. And, uh, if Mad Max won, great. Mad Max, the visuals in that movie are incredible. But um, that bear looks so real. Mm -hmm. And as it's 
ripping him apart. Like I start to think about in 20 years, if somebody sits down and watches the Revenant because like Ingeritu wins best or they're going through Ingeritu's movies, which if you haven't, you should. Even if you don't love them all, you should sit down and watch them. He's like must see viewing all of his movies. And okay, so Jordan says Mad Max won. Okay, Mad Max deserved it. That's fine. But <laughs> that bear, I wonder in 20 years, are we going to look back and say, nah, it doesn't look real? Because what are my eyes like? My eyes now tell me that's a real bear. And so what is going to be different? You know, it's not like I was watching The Mummy Returns before this podcast because it was on. And like the Scorpion King, nope, that is a CGI rock. That is a weird looking thing. I don't like it. But in 2001, it also looked like a pretty shitty CGI rock. And nobody liked it. Like that got a bad, that got bad. What, like, what is going to be more realistic than this bear? Unless a bear is literally mauling an A-list actor. Mm. I don't know. And for me, that's what brought me in with this movie. I like the setup. I like the start. I like that there's barely dialogue. They're trying to escape. Mm-hmm. They're getting attacked. They got to get their furs, their trappers. That's what they got to do, blah, blah, blah. They're moving. But that scene is when I was like, yep, I am 100% sold. Whatever's got to happen after this has to happen after this. And uh, yeah, for I, I mean, I just, bought, I just bought into it. I just bought into it all. And uh, to me, like, to me, this movie doesn't feel two and a half hours long. You might totally disagree. A lot of people might totally disagree. But this movie to me does not feel two and a half hours long. But you also have to remember that in my top ten or something, I think I have maybe three three-hour movies. So it's just yeah, kind no. of preference. What do you like? What don't you like? And what do you consider bloated? What do you consider boring? Mm-hmm. What do you consider too much? I'm into all of those just like Tree of Life is in my top 100. There's a yeah, lot of well, bloat I mean, in that movie if you want to argue I, that. I mean, it's a really weird thing too, and I like. I don't normally feel that way about movies either. I have a ghost story way up on my mm-hmm. list, which has an eight-minute scene of someone eating a pie. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's bloated, yeah. but I, I don't know. There was just something about this movie that just felt like it was over long for some reason, and it, it's really hard to put in words exactly what aspect of it did that. Maybe it was the fact that I watched the first half, half hour of the movies realizing there were supposed to be subtitles that's my favorite part that that made me laugh yeah i got to the scene where the the uh the re and the french are speaking to each other and i'm like there's definitely supposed to be subtitles yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that was how i watched atonement the first time i'm sitting there and i'm like i don't speak french there's no like okay oh she said and then i'm like no this is a full-blown conversation the hell yep. is going on um weird when the subtitles aren't working for sure uh but I don't think that that would have necessarily changed much for you considering, yeah. but same feeling though. I, I always talk about the other friend who made the, his top hundred list. And you know, mm-hmm. when I watched the swimmer last week, that was on his list. We saw the revenant together and he said the same thing. He was like, it was good, but this guy always makes his movies with something that's just missing. And he feels that way pretty much about every Inuritu he's seen. Okay. I love Inuritu. I just, I love mm-hmm. it all. I mean, I don't know where, where he's been. Where's, where's the next movie? What's going on here? I think he's great. I think I love his personality. I love that he's kind of got like an F you to Hollywood type personality um, that it shows in his movies and it also shows in his real life. I love it. And uh, yeah, he's uh he's a, uh, he's an interesting dude and he's a, he's a great director, I think. And yeah. yeah. And you do have to look at the performances he pulled out of these actors in this movie. And, and cause that, that is huge. Leo, Leo's performance is incredible for someone with, I don't know, maybe a dozen lines in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And like we said, Tom Hardy's performance is even better. Uh, Demon Hall or uh, Domino Hall uh, Gleason 
is also incredible in this mm -hmm. movie. And to, to see that type of characterization, because there is some characterization still, you still very much know who these characters are by the little bit of dialogue they have and by the yeah. way they carry themselves in this film. And that's important. And you have to attribute that to the director and his ability to pull that out of the actors. Yeah. And, and Tom, Tom Hardy, he's uh he's always been known for his grunting and his weird noises and, and whatever, you know, whatever it is he's got going on. But I just, I just find him so interesting to watch. He's such a physical actor. A lot of people always be, oh, ooh, 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 you know, in Lawless, he grunts his way through the entire movie. But he's such a physical actor. I mean, just the way he does his hair, you know, when he's always playing with his hair because of the scalp and all of that. It's just so much interesting going on with that. And um, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, Mark Rylance ended up winning the Oscar. I was happy it was Mark Rylance and not Mark Ruffalo. I thought, uh, I mean, we'll get to yeah. Hot Dog Boy when we get to when we get to Spotlight. But but I always think Mark Rylance, you know, he was very good in, in Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies is a pretty underseen movie. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know, Tom Hardy, there's just something about him. And, and, and Leonardo DiCaprio, to get him so out of character for what he normally mm -hmm. does this isn't what he does as this isn't leonardo DiCaprio isn't tom hardy tom hardy's a physical yeah. actor leonardo dicaprio is not in any way shape or form a physical actor and he wins his oscar for being an incredibly physical actor i mean it's it you know it says a lot about what ingerito is able to pull out jordan alford still uh, you know got, got to take his shots at me he's definitely my least favorite of the three amigos he's he's my favorite He's my favorite. I'd say Del Toro is my least favorite. I think Del Toro for me is the most hit or miss. And uh, Queron, Queron is also hit or miss. I do not like Gravity very much. So that that also doesn't help. Um, considering that's the one Queron won everything for. But I think I might. I think I I actually do have more Queron on my list than Ingeritu, and they're both higher than Ingeritu. Mm -hmm. But I like Ingeritu's like as a whole more than I like yeah. Queron's. I think. Yeah, it, it, it's just interesting. It, it, this is a very, it's a hard movie to judge because it is so different than anything else we've ever seen. From Although our era. From our era. Yeah, 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 yeah. from our era. Um, I will say this, though. One thing I didn't like, I don't like, I don't like the racism towards indigenous peoples when they always reference scalping and these type of things. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know enough about, like, again, this being set in 1820s Canada, I'm mm -hmm. the last person to speak on that. So I just sit down and I just watch the movie and I'm like, this is the story. This is what part we're in. I guess this is what is happening. And I don't really, like, I, I, I try to, like, keep... I try to just buy into what the story is telling me as much as possible, as long as it's not, like, the birth of a nation. That's different. Yeah. But I don't know enough about that, and I didn't search enough to be like, this happened, this didn't happen. Yeah, and I mean, like, me, obviously, like I said, like, we're taught about this time period a lot. Mm -hmm. So we know a lot about what was going on in that time period. And it's like, it, scalping in movies just kind of has this effect on me, or just in any type of media. I think of, uh, what is it, episode eight of the first season of Westworld, mm. which is a near-perfect hour of television except it has this inherently racist scalping scene in it and like like that just it, it took me out of the movie a little bit because it's like mm. Mm, were they really doing this like 
this just seems like a racist stereotype here. Yeah, see, and that's one of those things like growing up in America on the East Coast, we don't learn anything about mm-hmm. indigenous populations <laughs> like of any like that just doesn't happen. I mean, maybe if you lived out yeah. West more, you'd hear more because but out here, like you really don't hear much. So for me, like to me, I was just like, yeah, that's what's happening in this movie. That's what they're doing. I don't I mean, I just don't know enough. But yeah, yeah so for me, I'm able to like, I don't know, tune it out, turn it off. I don't want to say I'm tuning out racism, but to me, I don't find it to be. I guess I just don't find it really racist. I think it's it's just an instance of me being more hyper aware of the situation yeah. than most people would be. Like you um, said, you've lived you've lived in where this movie is. You know, I yeah, haven't. Exactly. I live near houses. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. But overall, other than that, um, it, it's a very it's a good movie. It, it's mm-hmm. well made. It's just missing something for me. That's all. Yeah. No, and that's and I I get it. I get it. I'm I like I said when I started prefacing this whole thing, I feel like I'm in the minority. Mm-hmm. There's I mean, and you gave it three stars. I still yeah. want to know the twenty-two percent of critics who like flat out didn't like this movie. Mm-hmm. What did you not like? Because like I, that's just my thing. Like Birdman, I could understand people not liking more. And Birdman, I love. Yes. I think Birdman's phenomenal. But I can understand people not liking that because like it is preachy, it is in your face, it is like, look at me, look at me. But this one, I just I just I have a hard time where it's like, okay, I can understand not loving it, but how did you like absolutely dislike it? Like, what did you dislike so much about it? And what did you not get from it that you were hoping to get? I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that people were pissed off that Birdman won best picture and that people were tired of Ingeritu and his shtick, which I think is hilarious. So I think it's that. That's what I got. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing when it comes to the reasons why people will say they don't like something. It's weird, right? It's weird. Yeah. It's all timing. We talked about it so much on this podcast. It's all yeah. all timing. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it comes down to, I mean, even, even movies I dislike, I can separate my lack of enjoyment in them to appreciate the art of them. Yeah. If you look at my letterbox, there are very very few movies with less than a three star rating Mm -hmm. and that's because i even if i don't like a movie i can appreciate what it's showing if if you're getting like a two or below on my letterbox it's because you're a really bad movie yeah it's because i don't even understand why people like you you know what i mean (laughs) like i get that i get that and 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 that's how i feel about you know like a beautiful mind i talk about this all the time but like that's a movie where, like, I don't appreciate it and I don't like it. Like, I don't mm-hmm. appreciate it. But then there's other movies, like, as I was saying earlier, jokingly, throw out Cecil B. DeMille, throw out William Wyler, which I, you know, blew that one by not saying he did Ben-Hur. But when you start, when I say throw these people out, it's just for me, I do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. They're just not for me. Gone with the Wind, it just doesn't do it for me. I get why that is considered a classic. That is a massive movie with a lot going on. And it's also not one of the 10 best films ever made. I can yep. appreciate it, but I don't like it. Um, and, and and I totally get that. And I think epics definitely have that effect on people mm-hmm. more than any other genre. You're a lot less likely to sit down and watch a comedy and say, oh, I appreciate it, but I didn't like it. You're going to say that was stupid. I hated it. I'm never watching that yep. again. It didn't make me laugh. And the people made dumb jokes. But with an epic, I think it's easier to sit down and say, wow, they went for it. 
I don't get it, but they went for it. I think it. I think it's a, it's a genre that does have a couple of outs, but it's also a genre that I don't understand why there's so much less defense of it now than there was back in the 50s and the 60s when these movies were popping up every year. Yeah, exactly. So, but that's it for our number 78, The Revenant and Unbreakable, two movies that uh, you should revisit if you have not revisited them since they came out or in a very long time with Unbreakable. Um, Next week, we are moving on to our number 77s, which for John is Eastern Promises from 2007. And for me is The Godfather Part 2, which is on AMC commercial TV here in America in just one half hour. So if you got six hours to blow on July 5th, go sit down and watch The Godfather Part 2 on commercial TV. Remember, they're going to cut out a lot of curse words, but it's still going to be about six hours long because the movie is three hours and 22 minutes. And that should never be on commercial TV. Um, But yes, The Godfather Part 2. Long movie. John, I'm just going to make you work for it, man. I'm sorry. You got long movies coming up like crazy. Uh, I've got long ones for you coming up, too. Don't worry. We've got some Russian epics eventually. I'm going to skip all you. It's too long. I'm not watching it, John. I'll give you the text. Sorry, man. Didn't watch it. You can can just take over for the half hour. But make sure you watch mine. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to next week talking about two very different gangster movies will be very interesting mm-hmm. yeah no that that will be a fun week for sure um so yeah david cronenberg and uh yes jordan at least i have it on my list you can yell at sir jonathan <laughs> over there who does not have it on. i've never list. seen it before jordan he has never seen the godfather part two um all right well yeah that's what we'll be talking about next week so we'll get john's take on his first time watching the godfather part two and i'm probably going to watch this movie and say oh it should be higher on my list I haven't seen it in like seven or eight years and pretty much everything above it. I've seen more recently than that. So next week, that's what we're doing. The Godfather part two and Eastern promises. Um, get, get, yeah. Get excited for, for gangster movies. That's, that's the theme of July 12th slash 13th. I guess it's the 12th, July 12th. That is when we will be live. See everybody then. <laughs>